first verse
was good to hear you all singing this morning. You can turn in your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 9 in order to understand Paul's first comments in chapter 9. You have to know a little bit about Paul himself. Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. It is surprising how many people miss that fact, especially online. Man, every biblical errancy you ever want to find can be found online. But Paul was not one of the original 12. After Jesus ascended back to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, he then changed Paul, who was currently killing Christians, who was persecuting the church. He was on the road to Damascus when a bright light shone down from heaven knocked Paul down, blinded him, and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so Paul was converted after the church had already begun, after the inception of the church. And therefore, in a lot of places where Paul planted church, there were, as there always are, there were critics and there were people who were quick to point out that these churches were following the teaching of Paul, who they then argued is not an apostle. He was not one of the original 12. Now, apostolos, the Greek word translated apostle, simply means sent one, which is why they are specifically called apostles of Jesus Christ, because they were sent by Jesus Christ out into the world to preach his gospel. And Paul was not in that original sending. So by definition, he wasn't an apostle. To be an apostle, originally, you had to walk and talk with the Lord, and you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have had an actual encounter with the risen Lord to call yourself an apostle. Which means that people today who call themselves apostles are not. The best they can be is gospel preachers, but they're not apostles. So Paul had to argue with the critics in Corinth who were critical of just about everything that Paul said and that Paul did. Remembering that the community in Corinth was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so now Paul comes telling Gentiles, you don't have to keep Sabbaths. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to follow after the rules of Moses. And so Paul was accused of being, as I am often accused, he is accused of being antinomian. That word simply means against law. Paul was preaching a message to primarily Gentiles that said that the Mosaic Covenant, which was originally made between God and Israel specifically, was not incumbent on Gentiles, was not to be placed on the conscience of Gentiles, that Gentiles were able to approach God through the intermediary agency of Christ himself that Christ would stand in the gap between believers and God 
and that he, as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our mediator, that he would be our approach to God, not the law of Moses. Well, you can imagine that when he said stuff like that, that there were Jews who would say, no, you can't say that. For 1,400 years we've been keeping the law, and the law was given to us by Moses and directly from God. And who are you to run around saying that Gentiles don't have to keep the law? After all, you're not even an apostle. And so chapter 9 is going to be the beginning of Paul's defense of his own apostleship. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. Go over to the book of Galatians for a moment. Go to Galatians 1. And we're going to start in verse 11 because Paul's going to provide for us a little of the history of his early days in ministry. You would think that as soon as Paul was converted, that he immediately went out there preaching. After a light from heaven, after hearing a voice from heaven, after having been blinded and then getting his sight back when Christians prayed for him, you would think that he would just be on fire for the Lord. You would think that he would get right out there and start preaching. The only problem was he didn't know anything yet. All he knew was the law. He didn't know the teaching of Christ yet. And so here's what he did. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus apparently taught Paul, which is why Paul could then bring about these revelations, these mysteries, mysterion in the Greek, which means unrevealed previously unrevealed truths of God. And in the time frame of God, it was time for these things to be revealed, and he specifically chose Paul to reveal these things. So Paul starts right out by saying, I didn't learn this from men. And in a moment, you're going to see that it's really obvious, because if he didn't know anything about Christianity, you would think that he would make a beeline to Jerusalem and would talk to the apostles and say, what did Jesus say? When he was here for the three and a half years that you walked and talked with him, what did he tell you? What are you out preaching? Well, in a moment, you're going to find out he didn't go to Jerusalem for another three years. So the revelation that he had was a revelation directly from Christ. For I neither received it from man, nor, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. He has bragged that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, that he was a Pharisee. He was so zealous for the law. He even says, as touching the law, I was blameless. So he's somebody who was steeped in Judaism and on top of that persecuted the church, held the cloaks when Stephen was stoned had a writ from the leaders in the temple allowing him to go find those that were in the way, which is what Christianity was originally called, that he could go and find people that were in the way and return them to Jerusalem to stand trial and potentially be killed. That was his former life in Judaism. 
For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. Do you hear him kind of boastfully saying, I was really up and coming. I mean, I was moving through the ranks. I was being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to do it? Look at that. Paul sees that from the time he was in his mother's womb, that Christ had already chosen him and set him apart, sanctified him, separated him from the rest of the world for God's exclusive purpose. Paul sees it as being before the foundations of the world, that God did the choosing, that God wrote names in the Lamb's book of life, that God already decided who was his. So if you're his today, there's no surprise. God is not up there going, whoops, oh, I didn't see that coming. He knew exactly who was going to come to him. I was, this morning in prayer, I mentioned it, praying with the men. I was really struck last night by the thought, why don't men believe? I can give them tons of evidence. And yet, no matter what I say, what I do, I can't get men to just believe, which is really a huge gamble. Because if it turns out that when you die, there's actually nothing, which is what the Darwinists would have you believe, that when you die, you just go into the darkness. Which means if you've spent your whole life devoted to Christianity and when you die, there is no God, there is no Christ, there is no afterlife, there are no angels. If that's true, you won't know it because you're going to go directly to the darkness and it's all over and you don't know anything. But if there is, if there is a God, I like the fact that in Paul's writing, he just assumes God. His argument is for the existence of Christ, but he always just assumes God exists. That's a given. So if God exists and men die and there's not nothing, there's actually something, well then what if it's that God who's described in the Bible? What if it's the God who judges? What if it's the God who chooses and elects and saves? Well, then you're going to be really happy you spent this lifetime devoted to the things of Christ. Mm -hmm. But if you spent your whole life thinking Darwinism was the way that the world works, if you do not have any faith in the finished work of Christ or in the glory of God, if those aren't the things that occupy your mind in this lifetime, and then you die, and then he's there, and then he's real, and then he's a judge, you're going to regret it forever. And that's just too big a risk to take. I mean, forever is a long time. <laughs> Pack a lunch. I mean, you're going to be judged forever, and the judgment is Terrifying the way Jesus describes it, outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's God who is light, 
God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches. Perfect light. And he's going to cast you into outer darkness. Away from God. Away from everything that is glorious and holy. So here Paul says, the reason I believe this. Because that's the, the question last night. Why don't men believe? He says here that it has to be God who chooses people and that he chooses them from the very foundation of the world and that he knew them when they were in their mother's womb. And even if they spend their whole life in the pursuit of the persecution of the church, like Paul did, the day will come in God's good timing when God is going to introduce himself to you. And he's going to draw you to himself. And he's going to open your mind, take out your stony heart, and give you a heart of flesh. And he's going to begin to teach you the things of God. And he just doesn't do that for everybody. Because some people just don't believe. But if he did it for you, that is a rare and a precious and a special gift. That the God who made everything did for you. So, Paul could say, even though I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, but when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. He did not go to the other apostles. He did not go to Jerusalem and say, what did Jesus teach? Nor, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia. And I returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. 15 days is not enough to get an adequate education in Christianity. Instead, Paul was already firm in what Christianity was. He had already had the revelation of God to him. He already knew what it was he believed over the course of those three years. And then he went to Peter so that they could confer together. He didn't get his teaching from flesh and blood. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by face, by sight, to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians. You can see now why Paul had such a tough time with the critics who knew that he was a persecutor of the church, that he was zealous for Judaism, and now he's telling men, 
not to keep the law of Moses, you can imagine the kind of criticism that he got. So Paul was constantly trying to appease his critics and assure the church that he was indeed an apostle. First off, he had to say, I have seen the Lord. I get it. To be an apostle, you have to see the Lord. I have. I've seen the risen Christ. His argument's going to be to the Corinthians, look, even if I'm not an apostle to other churches, even if there are other churches, other places where I'm not considered their apostle, I am to you. I planted this church. I taught this church. You saw the gifts and the miracles that I brought to this church. I am certainly an apostle to you. So then there are going to be those critics who are going to say, well, if you're an apostle, you would act a certain way. And Paul, who has just said, there is nothing against him. Everything is lawful to me. Not everything is expedient. Not everything is good and helpful, but, but there's no law against me. I'm free of all men's judgment, he says. No man judges me. In fact, I don't judge my own self. So you can see that Paul is saying, I don't care what you people think of me. I'm just going to have to preach the word, and God's going to give the increase. Now, one more fact you need to know, and then we can get into the text because this is all introduction. Paul planted the church there at Corinth, and there is every evidence that Peter had also been to the church at Corinth and had ministered there, because that's going to come up. Remember earlier in this book where Paul had to say, some of you say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. Well, they wouldn't say, I'm of Cephas, that's Peter, they wouldn't say, I'm of Peter, had Peter not actually baptized some of them there, if Peter had not been there ministering to some of them. That's why these factions broke off from one another. And so Peter apparently had been in Corinth. And everybody knew that Peter was an apostle, that Peter had seen the Lord both in his three-and-a-half-year ministry and also the risen Lord. And so you can see why people would say, well, I'm more of Peter than I am of Paul. And so Paul has to argue that he is an apostle, at least to the church in Corinth. He starts out with the phrase, oh, it's a tough place to start, but he says, am I not free? The big chapter 9 right there was added by translators about 500 years ago. The original letter that he wrote to Corinth went directly from the conversation about how he would voluntarily humble himself when he was with a brother with a weaker conscience. If there was somebody who would not eat meat because it had been sacrificed to an idol, then he said, well, then I wouldn't eat that meat either because I don't want to offend my brother's conscience because it's a weaker conscience. But me, there's no law against me, and I know an idol is nothing, and I will eat anything that's set before me, and I'm free. So that's how chapter 9 starts. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not my work 
in the Lord? The very fact that the church at Corinth exists was Paul's work. They would never have heard this gospel had Paul not come to them. Had Paul not dedicated himself to the missionary journeys that he took. Undergoing sickness, undergoing jailings, undergoing three days, three nights in the deep, in the sea. These were treacherous journeys. But he did it for the sake of the gospel of Christ so that people would hear about Christ. And so he could say to the church, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal, you are the signet of my apostleship in the Lord. That word seal is the same word that's used for a, a signet ring that a king would wear. Put a little wax on a letter, put his signet in it. You knew that was right from the king. Well, that's the word that he's using here in saying the very fact that you exist, the fact that you have faith, the fact that you are looking forward to the return of Christ, the fact that you are interested in the things of Christ makes you my seal, my signet in the Lord that I have established this church. I am an apostle. My defense to those who examine me is this. Okay, there's all the critics. There's all those who are examining him. And there are those who are saying, well, you know, if he were really a man of God, he would fill in the blank. I've lived with this more years than I can count. And, you know, my flesh wants to say to people, Hey, this is just how I am, and I'm a rebel, and dig me, and na 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 born to be wild. I mean, I just want to just tell people, just back off me, man. But the older I get, the more I've learned to take the Pauline attitude of not creating an offense, because when I create the offense, I found out that regardless of whether or not I'm driving people away from me, I end up driving them away from Christ. And so for Christ's sake, I'm willing to humble myself more so that I don't stand in the way of people coming to Christ. I just don't want that to be their excuse. Well, you. And so there were people who were saying things about Paul. Paul eats meat, sacrificed to idols. I saw him do it. Remember the charge they laid to Jesus because they saw him getting together with sinners and eating and drinking wine. They said that he was a wine-bibber and a glutton because critics are always going to find something to criticize about. Everybody needs to eat, but the critics will say, well, he eats the wrong thing or he eats too much of this or he, well, Paul had to deal with the same thing. I don't like the way you eat. I don't like the way that you drink. And there were people who would say, well, now that Paul has made such a big thing of the fact that he's single, he should not have any women around him ever. And then there are people who said, well, for whatever reason, Paul, you should never be married. And yet Peter was married. There were people who said, Paul's a Johnny-come-lately, and so I'm not sure that the phrase Johnny-come-lately existed in first century Israel, but... They said, well, he's just come along later. I can see 
supporting Peter because he was actually with Jesus and Jesus told the original 12 apostles when he sent them out that if they went into any city and those people heard him that they would provide food and shelter and clothing and so don't take a change of clothes and don't take an extra walking stick don't take a begging bag with you everywhere you go people are going to take care of you if they don't hear you brush the dust off your feet and walk away and go to another city and so if Peter comes to Corinth and he exercises that right to expect some kind of support, well, that's Peter. But Paul, he just came along later. He shouldn't get any support. So Paul has to deal with all these critical comments, and he has to correct their thinking. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink. There are going to be people who criticize what he eats and drinks. Yes, I believe that both Jesus and Paul drank wine because they use the word. They use the word for new wine. He uses the word for new wine and he describes wine. And Paul even says to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities which can only be medicinally helpful if we're talking about fermented wine. Paul did not say, take a little grape juice for your often infirmities. That's not going to do anything for anybody. So Paul says, don't I have the right to eat and drink? And don't we have the right? Now, some of your translations will say to take along a sister. Some will say a believing sister. Some will say a believing wife. It all depends on the translator. But Paul is arguing, if there are women in our midst, don't I have the right to take a believing sister along with me? He says, even as the rest of the apostles, the other existing 11, 12 now, that they've had a vote and they've chosen another, the existing 12 take around believing women with them, and, and some are married and have wives, just like the brother of our Lord had a wife. And Cephas, Peter was married. So don't I have the same right? Why is it different for me than it is for everybody else? If another apostle comes here and he eats and drinks and he has women with him and he's expecting some kind of remuneration, you're quick to give it. It's only me, it's only me and Barnabas, he says, that you expect to pay our own way and to limit our own freedom. Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Okay, when the apostles would come, when Peter would come, when Apollos would come, when anybody else would come to Corinth, especially if they were of the original 12, then they received support, and the church did not expect them to work a job. But Paul argues that while he was in Corinth, that he was a tent maker, and he paid his own way, and he didn't take anything from the Corinthian church. Now, this is a big area of discussion, that Paul did not take any remuneration while he was in Corinth. It was a source of personal pride, he's even going to use the word boast, that he was able to present the gospel to the Corinthians 
without being a burden to them. He didn't want to get in the way. Like I said earlier, he didn't want to be the reason that anybody didn't pursue Christ. He didn't want to stand between them and Christ and have them say, I know why you're doing this. I know why you're preaching. You're in it for the money. And apparently, from what Paul says, there were people who were preaching Christ for the money. And so he wanted to make sure that nobody ever accused him of making money off the gospel. Let's take a couple more verses and then we're going to discuss that because it's going to come up quite a bit in Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Here's his thinking. Look at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. Well, if you were going to be a soldier for Rome, if you were going to be a soldier for the temple, if you were going to act as a soldier for a private army, then you expected the person whose army it was to pay you to do that job. You wouldn't expect to provide your own food. You wouldn't even today. If any of you joined the army, you would expect the army to feed and clothe you. Tell you where to go, give you some place to sleep, take care of you. So Paul's argument is, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat from the fruit of it? If you saw somebody working really hard on like a vegetable garden in their backyard, and when the vegetables finally grew up, they didn't take any of the food? They labored out there. They worked in the hot sun. They watered. They seeded. They fertilized. They did everything so that they'd have an abundant crop, but they didn't eat any of it. The chances are you'd think they're crazy. People don't do that. The reason that you plant a vineyard is so that you can eat the fruit of it. Or who tends to a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So all three of these examples are Paul saying, I planted this church and I planted it in hope, knowing that you would one day support me the same way that a soldier is supported or that a vineyard supports the person who planted it or the same way that a herd gives milk to the herder. In the same way, I ought to get your support. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law, back in Deuteronomy, you can read it, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he asks, I think, the funny question, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? The answer is no, oxen can't read. <laughs> So oxen are not opening Deuteronomy and going, hey, don't muzzle me. God wrote this on purpose because, as Paul is going to say in a moment, those that even served in the temple ate from the temple sacrifices. Those that waited on the altar ate from the altar. And so he's going to conclude that those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. Because after all, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? The law says you shall not muzzle 
the ox when he's treading out the corn. In other words, all that means is when the ox is pulling the thresher to thresh the corn, you don't muzzle the ox so that the ox can eat from the corn that he's threshing. So if he's putting in work in the field, you also let him eat from the field. So Paul says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing, the NASB says, of sharing the crops. Again, all he means is the one who gets out there and plows the field, which is hard, dirty work. The one who's out there plowing the field is expecting, he's hopeful, that someday something's going to grow from that field. And he's going to have food because the crops grew in that field. So he's putting in the work of plowing because he's hoping for the return. The thresher comes and threshes because he's hopeful that he's going to be able to eat. He's anticipating in hope that he's going to eat from the things that he's threshed. So if that's true of those who thresh, if it's true of those who plow, if it's true of those who herd, if it's true of those who are soldiers, if it's true of those who plant vineyards, then Paul is arguing, why isn't it true for me? I've put in work. I've put in the effort. You are my work in the Lord. Shouldn't I receive remuneration? Or is it only Peter and the other apostles who should receive that? And so Paul is arguing, I am an apostle. I have planted this church, and you should support me. In fact, he's going to go further. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things into you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you. If I have brought you, Paul speaking, if I have brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ that produces eternal life for you, then I have brought you the most precious thing there is that you can encounter in this lifetime. In exchange, is it too big a thing for you to give me something to eat? Is it too big a thing for you to give me a cloak if I need one? Sandals? A walking stick? A place to lay my head? Now, now I agree with everything Paul's saying here. And I said a few minutes ago, this becomes kind of controversial. Because now that Paul has laid out the standard, the expectation, now that he has even quoted from God's word, what the power is that he has to expect this kind of payment, remuneration, he's now going to say, but that doesn't count for me. Yeah, you ought to be paying me, but I will never take anything from you. And that has caused people, critics again, to say, well, then every preacher should have that same attitude and take no money. That every preacher should work a job, because after all, Paul worked a job, Paul worked as a tent maker, and therefore all preachers should be tent makers, and nobody should ever get any kind of remuneration from the church. So here's what Paul says, and then we'll get into the argument. If others share this right, he keeps using the word right, the right to expect something back. If others share this right over you, don't we more 
After all, if Peter comes, somebody else comes and ministers to you, you do take care of them. You do provide for them. Well, if others have shared this right over you, don't we more? Because after all, we've planted this church. I'm the apostle that was sent to you specifically. I have brought you the words of eternal life. And is it too much for me to be taken care of? So he says, if others share the right over you, don't we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He did not want anybody to be able to say, Paul's in it for the money. So let's be honest. In this day and age, especially with the background that Tom and I have, especially with the churches that emphasize giving, there are a whole lot of people in the world who have been damaged enough by churches that insist on giving that now they don't want to give anymore. And so they avoid going to churches because they don't want to feel like their pockets are being picked. And they have that, that hard shell on them where they say, you're not going to get through to me anymore. I heard a uh, phrase long ago that most people are inoculated with just enough church to keep from catching it. Because so many churches want to get on you about your money, want to get into your wallet, want to build bigger edifices to themselves. And the church becomes fabulously wealthy as a result. And then they're not equally kind, generous, and sharing with the people who are doing the giving to them. They also teach you to give out of guilt. This is the kind of teaching I was raised on. Tom and I were raised on it, that you better give to God. In fact, you better tithe to God. If you don't tithe to God, he's going to get you. He promises he's going to resist the devourer for your sake. The devourer. That's a bad name. I don't want the devourer in my house. No devourer. I want that part where you... You get overflowing, pressed down. Over. I want that. I want abundant blessings. I want that. But if you weren't giving at very least 10%, which, by the way, I've said it before, when it comes to tithing, 10% doesn't do it. 30% is what the Old Testament says. But we were taught 10% systematic tithes or God was going to get you. In fact, We'd go to the end of the book of Malachi and we would find out that we were cursed with a curse because we robbed God. We had robbed God. Over and over and over. over. We, were, we were taught such guilt in giving. And all that does to people is make them learn to hate the guilt, leave and not come back. Yes. Because they know if they come back, you're going to try to pick their pockets again. I don't teach guilt. For 15 years, we have not taken up an offering in this church. There's a box on the wall. If you feel like giving, you can give. Paul says, let every man according as he purposes in his heart. So let him give. Now, there are people who say, well, then the church needs to be tithing because Israel used to tithe, so the church needs to be tithing. But I don't find anywhere in the entire New Testament, nowhere where Paul ever teaches the Gentiles to tithe. 
doesn't exist. Because get this right, a tithe was a tax on Israel, specifically on Israel for the support of the priests and the temple and the Levites and then the fatherless and the widows. And so those people were why there was always grain in the storehouse so that those who had nothing could come and get something. And those who had devoted their whole lives to the work of God could come there and eat. That was the reason for the tithe. But the church is not the storehouse. And the church doesn't have priests and Levites. And we're not out back slaughtering lambs and oxen. And you don't have to succumb to the tithe, succumb to the tax that God included in the law of Moses. That law is gone, therefore we don't teach tithing. And Paul never taught the Gentile church to tithe, and there's no way that they just magically knew about it. He would have to teach them for them to do it. And instead of teaching them systematic 30% or God will get you, he ended up saying, let every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Now, the assumption throughout all Pauline writing is that you will give. But you'll give out of a heart of grace and thankfulness. God has provided for you so much that you have no idea how much you have. I've got closets full of clothes at home. I've got clothes I haven't worn since since I was in California. I've still got them. I've got T-shirts that go back to California. Still got them. I've got a refrigerator full of food, and so do most of you. You've got a car. You've got air conditioning. You've got carpet. You've got things that you're just so accustomed to that you don't even realize how fortunate you are. And God has provided all of that for you. And out of a heart of thankfulness, out of a heart of gratitude, you ought to give back to him. But listen, God to be God doesn't need your money. If the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God, if God who said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What are you going to give to God? What are you going to do to make God better? You can't do anything to give God anything because it all belongs to him anyway. But the principle of giving, the principle of sacrifice, the principle of thanksgiving is throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, it's motivated by law and guilt. In the New Testament, It's motivated by grace and thankfulness. But I don't even do the money here at GCA. I don't know how much anybody gives. He knows. If you're a cheapskate and you've never given anything, he knows. (laughs) But I I don't do money here because I don't ever want to be influenced by, oh, that person gave a lot and that person didn't give anything. But the assumption throughout Paul's thinking and writing is you will give. It's a natural response to the spirit of God within you. The big principle, and I've said this so many times, the big principle is God who was under no compunction to do anything. God who nobody could stay his hand or ask him what he's doing. God who is completely in charge gave his son. He didn't have to do that. 
from the minute that Adam and Eve sinned, from the moment they rebelled, he could have written off mankind. But he didn't. What did he do? He gave. He gave his son. He sacrificed his son on behalf of people who he calls his enemies, on behalf of people who didn't want it, didn't know they needed it, weren't looking for God. He sacrificed for them anyway. That's a giving act. That's an act of kindness and grace. His son gave his life. Now, I like you all. I like you all a lot. But the likelihood that I'm just going to give my life for you, not probable. (laughs) (laughs) He gave his life for people who hated him, for people who who rebelled against him, who sinned against him, who weren't looking for him, who didn't want him, and he gave his life. That's a sacrificial gift. And his death and resurrection gave people the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God gave you the confidence and the peace that passes understanding. You see, there's a whole lot of giving that goes on in heaven. And you are the recipient of all that giving. And if we have instilled in you these spiritual things, says Paul, if God has given you this spiritual hope, this spiritual joy, this spiritual anticipation of grand things to come, if God has done all that giving, the giving does not stop when it gets to you. When it comes to you, you don't get to just hoard up all the good things that have been given you. Now, giving comes in a lot of different forms. You can give to hungry people. You can give to somebody who doesn't have as many clothes as you have. You can can give to people. But in this instance, Paul is talking specifically about giving to those who lead the church. And I understand. It's one of the reasons that in 15 years you haven't heard me teach much on giving. Because I understand that when I say these things, it sounds like I'm talking about me. Like I'm saying, you need to give to me. I understand what it sounds like. But here's a reality. God to be God doesn't need your gift, but you need to learn to give. If your heart is cold, if your heart is hard, and all you're doing is taking in all the goodness and not giving it out, then you have not yet experienced Christianity fully orbed. You have not yet experienced the Spirit of God making you a generous person. And when that happens, it really, it's such a good feeling. Have you ever done something in your life that you hoped somebody saw? (laughs) Yeah, we all have. We've all had that. I mean, I just don't believe that anybody is truly altruistic. I think we all hope that at least somebody saw it. You know how celebrities, every once in a while, start a foundation, start some kind of charity, and then you hear about it. It can be anybody. It can be the Michael Jackson Charity Foundation. I don't know why I came up with that name, but I did. Okay. I don't know Michael Jackson. I've never met Michael Jackson. I know nothing about Michael Jackson. Why do I know that he had a charity? Because he made sure that I found out about it. Because he wanted 
for me to appreciate the fact that he had a charity. All charities are like that. They want you to know that they are charitable because they want somebody to see it. They want, they want something back. Okay, so have you ever done something really good for somebody and then wanted to tell somebody? I did it once. I was in a McDonald's. You nodded too quickly. What's your story? <laughs> no? No? Okay. I was in a McDonald's one time, and I saw a guy, just terrible, decrepit guy. This is in California. And, and, and he ordered hot water. That's all he ordered. So it was free. They gave him hot water, and he took some ketchup packets, and he put packets of ketchup in the hot water so that he could make soup. And that's all he had to eat. And I walked over to him and said, are you hungry? <laughs> yeah. So come here. We ordered him some food. Okay, so I did that back in my pre-Christian days, in my rock and roll days. You know what I did right after I did that? I told everybody. <laughs> I'm still telling people. <laughs> Anybody... Anybody who'll listen, I want it. I only bring that up. I only bring it up because there's something that just feels good about doing something good for somebody else. And that's the experience you're going to have when you learn how to generously, out of grace, give to the work of God. You're going to have that same feeling of joy in giving. Paul writes... That God loves cheerful givers. And we've said oftentimes it's hilaros. It's the Greek word from which we get hilarious. So God loves cheerful giving. Here, let's look at a few verses. Let's, let's talk about this thing of Paul not taking anything from the church, even though he said, I have a right to expect that you would. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he's going to take the time to say, look, we don't sell the word of God. We don't peddle the word of God. We don't use the word of God like a product. We don't go out there and sell it to people for money. But at the end of 2 Corinthians, look at 2 Corinthians 12. Turn there for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 12. At the very end of the book, Paul is writing his last letter to the church at Corinth. And he recognizes that he has never taken anything from them and that it was a source of sort of boasting for him. That he wouldn't let anybody say he's in it for the money. Now he also is going to say that he robbed other churches here, look back at, at chapter 11, because there are some people who think, well, Paul worked as a tent maker, and since he worked as a tent maker, he didn't uh, take any money from the church. But the truth is, the reason he didn't have to take money from the church at Corinth was because other churches were providing for him. And he writes about that. And in fact, toward the end of this letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 11, verse 7, he says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. So it's not that Paul 
only worked as a tent maker and never took any payment or remuneration from the church. He only didn't take money from the church at Corinth because Corinth was a great metropolitan city, as we've often talked, and there were lots of temples and there were lots of priests and there were lots of people that were in it for the money. And Paul didn't want to be thought of that way. So in Corinth, he didn't take any money. But he didn't take any money from them because he took money from other churches. And now he refers to it as, I robbed other churches so that I wouldn't have to charge you for the gospel. And when I was present with you and when I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia... They fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. So here's Paul's argument. I robbed other churches. I took payment from other churches. As a consequence, I didn't have to charge you here at Corinth. And then he says again, and I won't charge you. Is that the end of it? It's not, because at the end of chapter 12, which is what I actually had you turn to to begin with, let's start at verse 13. Now let's start at verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There, see, I am an apostle. I came and did the miracles that only an apostle can do. And since I did all that among you, in what way did you fall behind all the other churches? The other churches received these spiritual gifts. You received these spiritual gifts. Churches that were planted by the other apostles received these gifts. Churches that were planted by me received these gifts. I am an apostle. Verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except this. Except this. Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. He now recognizes that he should have been a burden to the church at Corinth. That would be the only way that Corinth would learn what all the other churches had learned. And what did the other churches learn? How to give. And because they were giving to Paul, Paul did not have to charge the church at Corinth. And therefore, the church at Corinth became a non-giving church. And Paul said, forgive me this wrong. Do you realize that's the only place in all of Paul's writing where he says, forgive me, I was wrong? And it's in the subject of giving. It's under the heading of, you fell behind the other churches in absolutely nothing except this one thing. I wasn't any burden to you. Look at Galatians 6.6 for a minute. If you're in Corinth, just go forward one book. Here's the principle again, because he taught this principle in all the churches. 6, 6, Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, you've heard the phrase all your life, God is not mocked. And I've heard that phrase applied to so many things. But it's in the context here of giving. Because Paul says, 
do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that's what he reaps, which is right. Whatever kind of seed you sow, that's what's going to grow. You're going to reap cotton if you plant cotton. You're going to reap apples if you plant apple seeds. You're going to reap whatever you sow. So now he's going to apply that agricultural example to giving within the church. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh shall from his own flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life. Let the one who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That's a direct command from Paul. And if I've seen any direct command ignored by Christians, it's that one. So I think you see now that Paul was not afraid to talk about giving. I really shouldn't be afraid to talk about giving. Maybe I should talk about giving more, but I understand the perception. The perception in the world is if you're preaching the gospel, then you're just going to be in it for the money. And there are so many charlatans. There are so many people who are who are preaching the gospel just for the purpose of enriching themselves. And we see it all the time. We see it everywhere. Look, TBN doesn't need a gold piano. (laughs) You see examples like that, and you think, that's crazy. Joel Osteen does not need a stadium in Texas, nor does he need to spend $10 million on raising the roof up on it. Those are crazy expenditures. But... I heard many, many years ago, and this is going to sound familiar to you, the cure for wrong use is not no use. The cure for wrong use is right use. And so even though we can find charlatans, even though we can see plenty of examples of people who are doing it wrong, that doesn't mean we should just not do it. The directive is the directive. What Paul said is what Paul said. What's written in these letters is what's written in these letters. And the example is Paul was willing to humble himself. Paul was willing to make himself whatever he had to make himself. He's going to say it at the end of this chapter that he made himself as under the law to those that were under the law. He made himself as not under the law to those that weren't under the law. He made himself whatever he had to make himself among the people he was with in order that there was no hindrance to the gospel. And for that reason, he did not take any money from the church at Corinth because Corinth as a city had plenty of corrupt religion, had plenty of people who were saying, pay me, give me money as a priest to any number of gods. And so Paul didn't want Christianity to be like all those other false religions. He didn't want anybody to charge him with, well, Paul's only preaching this because he's trying to make some money off you. But it is a mischaracterization of Paul to say, well, he never took money from any churches. He worked as a tent maker. And therefore, you should also work as a tent maker, and you should not expect support from the church. Listen to this. We're nearly done. We really are. Anybody uncomfortable yet? Anybody thinking, oh, Jim's just trying to get in my pocket. (laughs) 
Okay. Because I don't know. I don't care. He knows. I don't know. If you, know, you want to beat somebody up, beat Tom up. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. You can walk out of here and put some money in the box. You can walk out of here and not put some money in the box. The box is by that door. It's not even by that door. Because for 15 years, this concept of grace giving, this concept of every man giving according as he purposes in his heart, that has sustained us for 15 years. We've never had a financial need where I've ever had to come to you and say, if you don't give something right now, we have to close the doors. The wolf is at the door. We don't stuff your mailbox. We don't send you emails enticing you to give more. We don't set a budget at the beginning of the year and then expect you to make up the budget. Plenty of churches do that. We live on exactly what God provides for us. And the way that God provides for us is through his people. And when God motivates his people to give, his people give. And this church has done fine for 15 years. And by the way, I'm very fortunate. Tom, who knows all the money stuff, Jennifer before that, we've never had a fight about money. We've never argued about it. I've never come to him and said, I'm underpaid. I need more money. Now, fortunately for all of you, I'm cheap to keep. But, <laughs> but, we, <laughs> but we've never argued about money. We expect God to provide for this church. My attitude 15 years ago when we started GCA as a public church, my attitude was if God wants this to survive, it'll survive. If God wants this to shut down, it'll shut down. If we have to write Ichabod above the door and walk out, then that's what we'll do. But if God wants this to happen, it'll happen. And it has for all these years. So... I'm back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Has he said this altogether for our sake? Yes, it is for our sake that it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of the sharing of the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And do you not know that those who attend regularly at the altar have their share of the food on the altar? So also the Lord has directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of those things, Paul writes again. And I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. We'll pick up right there next week. So the concept consistently all the way through the Bible is that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Paul did not peddle or sell the gospel. We do not peddle or sell the gospel. 
We give away books. The website's free. Thousands of, I don't know if I should say thousands of hours, but at least a thousand hours. More, 12, 1300 hours of teaching is on the website for free. Everything we do, everything we give away, we give it away free. And then the people who receive it, my expectation is if it's valuable to them, they'll support it. Because it's an exchange of value, like any other exchange of value. If you're walking through a mall and you see a pair of shoes that you just can't live without, you're going to pay for those shoes because that's an exchange of value. I will give you my money because that has value to me. If the gospel has value to you, if the preaching of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternity has value to you, you will show that value with the same money you would show value to anything else. Does that make sense? But I'm not trying to pick your pocket. I just expect you to to recognize that the Bible does say that full-orbed Christianity includes a giving spirit, giving to each other, taking care of each other, clothing and feeding each other, and then supporting the work of the ministry. Fair enough? Fair enough. In fact, on the website we have a PDF, the Guide to New Covenant Giving. The Guide to New Covenant Giving is a book I wrote over the course of a year, and I give it away free. You can get it on our website as a PDF. Okay, you can also get it on your Amazon Kindle, if that's an easier way for you to read it. Cost you three bucks to get it on the Amazon Kindle. But then we give it away for free on our website. So you know, in the early days, here, can I just can I just talk for a moment? I know the game's on. We'll get right to it. The DVR is running. But you know, in the early days of the church here at GCA, I just virtually never talked about giving because I really didn't want anybody to think that that's what I was doing. For the first eight years that we were a church, I didn't even take money from the church. I worked a full-time job, and I figured as long as my job paid my bills, I didn't want the church to give me anything. And then eventually, Jennifer at the time, who was our secretary then, said, well, you know, we can at least afford to pay your gas and light bill. I said, okay, do that. So the church did that. And then at the exact same moment in time where the company I was working for folded and laid me off, Jennifer said, we can afford you. Oh, well, that's lucky. Almost like... Luck is what it is. It is. It's luck. Almost like God knew what he was doing. But I felt for so many of those early years, I felt defensive. I felt like I constantly had to say to people, I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the money. Now that 15 years have passed, I think we've got a track record going here. I think everybody knows what GCA's attitude is, and maybe that will make me more comfortable talking about giving. But the Bible is plain that fully-orbed Christianity includes sacrificial and generous giving. Make sense? And Paul was an apostle. <laughs> I, think, I think we get that argument now. It's going to come up again. It comes up several times in the Corinthian letter. It's something that Paul really had to deal with, which implies to me that there were a lot of critics in Corinth saying that he wasn't because he has to keep arguing for it. Okay, I've got to let you go. Any questions? 
Was it really that clear? There are no questions. Well, all right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Really? That's it? My. Have I beat you down so badly this morning? All you've got left is bun. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.